Hi everyone, welcome to Conservation Chronicles. This is Jonah, and Camden's with me again. How you doing, Camden? I am well. I'm well. I feel like I say that every time, but I am. <laughs> I feel like we just we're just like robots whenever we start this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like I even have like the same inflection every time I do it. <laughs> same tone, everything. Yeah. It's but I hope people appreciate that consistency because yeah, I do exactly. when I listen to podcasts. That's right. Yeah, it's reassuring. Sometimes, sometimes people might think it's just the like a recording that we <laughs> yeah. recorded once and is played every time in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, cool. Well, this is going to be our second to last episode, um, which I you know discussed in the last episode in which we talked about. What did we talk about in the last episode? Oh, scavengers. That's right. Oof. Um, yeah, it all bleeds together. Uh, so yeah, this will be the second to last one. Still trying to decide what the last one's going to be about. Probably isn't going to be uh, anything. You a three-part series. Grand, <laughs> it's not going to be some grand finale. Just a warning. <laughs> it's going to be like a ten-minute news. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what it's going to be. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, let's get right into it. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, uh, we just have one piece of news to share today, um, that I want to talk about. Um, it's from a study that just came out like a couple weeks ago, um, about assessing how Americans view wildlife and, like their value and attitudes toward wildlife. So they surveyed over 43,000 people in all 50 states. And it was sort of like a follow-up to a 2004 study, but that study only covered 19 states. So this is a lot more comprehensive. Um, And they really focused on how respondents anthropomorphize wildlife because that's... um, an issue that's very real these days. And so, you know, we'll have the link to the study. Um, I don't want to, like, give every detail of their results, even though they're interesting, because every state, or, you know, states varied um, curious in the way that respondents... Say. Yeah, I didn't... I, yeah, I'm very curious. It was, like, South Dakota and Wyoming... Had the lowest levels of anthropomorphizing. It's probably like California, in New York. Florida, and no, it was California, Florida, and Hawaii had the highest. Hmm. Um. Which is interesting. Uh. Maybe it was like a bunch of people that were on vacation in Hawaii from California when they. Did yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> from Japan or something. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um. Anyways. But they also found, interestingly, which is contrary to what I would expect, is that urbanization wasn't an influential factor in determining Mm. anthropomorphic attitudes. So you would expect that people that live in cities are more likely to anthropomorphize animals. That wasn't the case. It was actually higher levels of education and income that related to higher levels of anthropomorphism. Um, And so... Which is... Um, yeah, that makes sense. Kind of. Yeah, it makes sense because, you know, maybe people that have higher incomes and are more educated are maybe just thinking about, like, 
uh, animal welfare and they're conservation not more. in contact with wildlife very often. Yeah, so they're thinking they're you know, yeah, anthropomorphizing them and and valuing them more than just a commodity. Um, I don't know, but it's just kind of interesting. But the urbanization thing is not what I expected. Um, but overall, the study sort of demonstrated that America has really shifted from viewing wildlife as a commodity, which was definitely the case prior to World War II, um, when people were more connected with the land, and shifting to seeing them more as almost equal with humans now. That's that's really what they found. Um, you know, a lot of respondents equated the value of animals with humans, um, which, of course, is also related to, you know, animal welfare propaganda, good and ill. Um, and there's also just increased sympathy for wildlife because of this, which is which is good to a certain extent. When it's well-founded. Yeah, and, it, you know, it, of course, viewing wildlife as a purely a commodity is... Yeah, that wasn't beneficial either. ...is not good. Yeah, it never really worked out that well. But when people see animals equal to humans, which this study sort of support, I mean, generally supports that idea for the United States, um, or in a lot of cases, people think that animals are more important than humans that's like really problematic to me um you know it's it's good from a conservation perspective because maybe people will want to you know conserve wildlife more but from a social perspective that's really harmful Mm. um and then it also creates challenges for conservation in, in some areas because people don't know how to differentiate between (laughs) wild animals and animals that don't belong. So when you're trying to eliminate non-native species, people, you know, it just equate all animals together as having the same value, whether they belong there or not, which is obviously we've discussed that a lot in this podcast. And I think people know where I stand on that. (laughs) Kill them all. (laughs) Yeah. Cats, horses, whatever. Um, Camels. Anyways, yeah. Uh, basically, any non-native species, they just need to be eliminated. Burmese pythons, whatever. Um, so, anyways, it's just an interesting, an interesting study. Um, because it was so comprehensive in nature, I think it it really is. The results are very powerful, and their conclusions are very meaningful. Um, so, I'll have a link to that. Um, to an article about it and then it'll have a link that link will have a link to the actual article if you want to read the peer-reviewed paper um, I think yeah. that it brings up an interesting discussion because it's it's you know we were talking that you know it's brought more wildlife you know conservation into highlight animal welfare like we said good or ill um, you know prior a lot of times animals were seen as commodities and it's unfortunate it's because we're going from one extreme to the other. Yet again, there's no middleman that's founded on science and reality. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I think yeah. there's, there must be, that just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? There, there must be. I, I don't know. I'm very curious on to how does that happen because, 
you know, thank God that finally, you know, we're not going around and, you know, killing everything and selling it on meat markets. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of things going on when it's not healthy, you know, you know, for example, you know, absorbent amounts of cats that, you know, killing thousands and thousands of birds, millions of birds, you know, because there's just too many of them. You know, it's bringing things out of balance once again. So it's just it's unfortunate. I wish there was ways that we could be you know, um, just as effective on campaigning on, you know, science-based things. But I think ultimately it's all, you know, it's emotion-based, you know, it's, they're playing the emotive card and whatnot. So I don't know. Yeah, that's definitely what this study is showing by, by focusing on the anthropomorphism part of it. Um, because I mean, anthropomorphism is, is bad with wildlife because they're, they're not people. So you know, projecting human emotions and stuff onto them is inappropriate. And so it's just an interesting dynamic because, you know, like you said, people are are valuing wildlife and it's, it's good, but they're thinking of them. Yeah. We're valuing them for the wrong reasons. It's just like, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, um, going back to commodity, like the first national parks or the first you know, conservation was valuing game species because we didn't want to lose them as a game species. It wasn't valuing them just because they have the right to be. You know what I mean? So it's the yeah, same yeah. thing or again. You know, of the role they're playing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's you know we're valuing the lions because they're charismatic species looking and stuff like that. You know, there's all this rhetoric behind lions or whatever, but we don't care about the obscure species. You know, that's something we've talked yeah. about several times. It's the same like thing. Saddle those storks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who even cares about those, right? <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very interesting study, um, very illuminating and much discussion could come from it. So, um, today or not today, because you're going to be listening to this in the future. Um, in this episode, we're going to talk about a topic called biogeography and, Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. The interesting thing about biogeography is that even if people don't know what it is, it's it's really a part of um, so much of what we talk about and do in conservation and ecological work. Because, well, I guess we should, let's just define it. Biogeography is is a science that attempts to describe and understand the distribution and abundance of biodiversity, both past and present. So it's looking at patterns that we currently see and, you know, sort of asking, how did we get here? Why did we get here? Um, Also, you know, describing those patterns before you can ask those questions. which has a lot of root in history. Um, Alfred Russell Wallace is someone from the 19th century who really pioneered this this field, along with Charles Darwin, but not as, as much as Wallace, um, by just sort of thinking about these questions, like why are animals distributed the way they are? Why are they different over here than they are over here? Those kind of questions and relationships um but implicit in all of this is that there are actually patterns that are out there in the world of 
how wildlife and ecosystems and plants are distributed. So it's it's not random. Something led them to be the way that they are. Right. Um, they have to have conducive factors for them to be able to move to that area or to be appealing to move to that area and then to stay in those areas. Yeah, yeah. And what are the what are the processes that led to that? You know, how did the pattern originate? And then also how they how are they changing and how might they change, especially yeah. with, you know, human development or, or climate change. And of course, we just may not be able to answer these questions in some cases, especially when we're asking questions about the history of how we got to this place. Um, so that that's one of the challenges of of biogeography. Um, but in, inherently, biogeography is is a th- synthetic field because it relies on all these other fields like ecology, geology, systematics, earth science, um, evolution. And when I say that, I mean like broadly defined and broadly interpreted. I'm not talking about like, you know, big bang stuff. I'm talking about speciation, that kind of stuff. Um, and how, how traits change within a population in order for species new species the way we define species of course this is an issue how how they develop um you know whether it be from isolation or or whatever which you know we'll talk about some of this stuff so you know you have to synthesize information from all these different fields of science to answer the questions about biogeography so like how has geology influenced the distribution of biodiversity or certain species you know, how has, you know, what is the geography of extinction and endangerment, meaning where are species going extinct or where are species endangered? Is there patterns to where most species are endangered? How have humans affected the distribution of biodiversity? And it doesn't have to just be, you know, affected the distribution of individual species. Yeah, it could be like a whole genre or a family or even a whole community, like a type of plant community or or whatever. Um, And then, like I already said, you know, how has speciation occurred and and how is it currently occurring? And these are all things that we can observe and measure in in some cases to to answer these questions. I think what I like about biogeography is, like, as you said, it's synthetic. You know, you have to have an understanding of multiple fields in order to apply it. It's kind of like philosophy in the sense you can't just... You know, it's like you have to understand sociology, history, mathematics, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, it's a it's a very almost umbrella-y, you know, and it's that's what's so interesting because it's the, the mesh of everything, you know, almost yeah. to understand it, which I find is, you know, complicated, challenging at the same time once you start to dive into it, very rewarding in that regard. And I think to help you understand it, you know, we could give us a couple examples of the types of questions, you know, what you know what does biography biogeography uh, answer or address so uh, for example you know why are all cacti example for one you know example for one single species only found in the americas um you know that's a huge question why can't we find you know this type of you know across similar you know climatic regions why is it only in this area um and why does that one you know that for example this one species of cacti why is it occurring in Africa and Sri Lanka of all places, you know, um, rather than all the other ones that are found in the Americas? 
And why is the wildlife of Australia and surrounding islands so unique in relation to, say, their neighbor Southeast Asia, whereas, you know, they're not too, too different, you know, difficult. You know, why is there such a diversity of antelopes and ungulates in Africa compared to other parts of the world? Um, why are they non-native to Australia? You know, there's plenty of these little things like that, you know, that, you know, why are there more deer species here, or so on and so forth. Um, why are there more tropics in this, yeah, excuse me, <laughs> why are there more species in the tropics than closer to the poles? Um, and, you know, when we're saying these questions, you might already know the answer or you have an idea, but it, that's the kind of, you know, biogeographic question you could ask yourself. Um, you know, to use an example from the previous episode that you guys had done, you know, um, about the Kahansi spray toad, um, you know, how can it end up in such a tiny restricted geographic range? How did peregrine falcons become distributed in every continent except, you know, the Antarctica? You know, how does one species have a widespread range then compared to another one? Uh, so these are all huge, huge um, questions that have, you know, multiple answers to them. So as a result, you can gather that indeed biogeography is in, you know, is a huge field. Um, you know, A, because of its breadth. You know, it's not an experimental science, but rather an observational science. Um, so, you know, both inductive meeting, coming to general conclusions for particular observations and deductive reasoning because, you know, you're going from general observations to more specific ones. Uh, and these are all involved in, in much of um, therefore making it, you know, retrospective. Um, of course, this means that you're, there are many, many assumptions uh, which can be, of course, problematic when you're interpreting, you know, data and coming to a conclusion. But this is the kind of process in which you you kind of, you know, adhere to when asking these kinds of questions. Um, so I think what we could do and is kind of go ahead. I was just gonna say there's just um, well one of the because it's so synthetic and it's such a huge field and it has so many dimensions. Um, a lot of people don't really treat it as like a unique field and because it's it's sort of like a a summary sort of right. science but so, so i mean so i think if i'm remembering co correctly one of my professors said there's only like also by the way we're doing this episode because i'm in a biogeography course right now <laughs> but he said that he he thinks there's only like two departments of biogeography in any university because it's it's not like treated like a it's not like a primary field because it's reliant on others you know what i mean right um but that could be said about multiple you know what i mean it could, eh. well yeah yeah but what's it's unlike you know say if you're just in ecology yeah you have to know some things about his the his depending on what you know questions you're asking and work the work you're doing you may not have to know about the the climate or the geography or the geology or you know um the soils or or whatever but when you're looking at biogeographical questions as i'm sure it's clear by now you you have to know something about all these things because you you can look at the distribution of a species and be like <clears throat> okay well it occurred here because, or it occurs here because, whatever it. 
only lives in warm areas or it can't live in cold areas so that's why it's restricted here but like on a on a geographic level you can say that like okay yeah it's whatever only in the between these latitudes where it's you know the between these temperatures or whatever but on a that's on like a broad scale when you start looking closer obviously a species distribution isn't going to be continuous like you look at a a field guide that shows that this species is it shows like you know whatever all of subs all of sub-saharan africa is where the the saddlebow stork occurs but then when you actually look at it you're like no that's not it's actually very fragmented and you know so you i'm saying all this because this is stuff that i'm working on now you know how did it get why is it fragmented what is causing it to be fragmented is it something that is a result of their ecological requirements is a result of human activity is it a result of climate change is it you know what is it and you know for a wetland species the obvious avenue of exploration is well wetlands obviously don't occur everywhere i mean they they do like we talked right, about but, they but don't every you know not ubiquitous foot. on the landscape yeah and then you have to consider things about um you know their food you know because if they're eating fish you know fish may not occur in every type of water body like not in the salt pans or something so they're even though there's water there doesn't mean they're going to be there and so there's all these dimensions and you really have to know something about their ecological niche when you start getting into these nitty-gritty details and if you're unfamiliar with a niche it's like the multi-dimensional space that an organism occurs which is like a very abstract explanation but you know it's not just a geographic 2d space you have to think about they they only occur in this a certain area where there's certain type of vegetation or certain type of climate or then you ask yourself why is that vegetation occurring in that area you know what i mean it can there's a lot of yeah yeah all these questions lead into other questions exactly. of course but as far as like a niche it's it's this the certain characteristics of um the environment that that species is is suitable to that species right but of course you know that's broadly but like i already said species aren't going to be um you know completely saturated on on the map you know on the surface of the the earth and so you know even though there might be conditions that meet the description of their niche over here why aren't they there and there's lots of reason for that it could be maybe they used to be and they aren't anymore for some reason so that's an avenue of research you could you could go down maybe they just haven't reached there yet you know a a huge part of this puzzle is is dispersal ability of individuals you know how fast can they colonize new areas or recolonize new areas and we see this you know of course invasive species are a an interesting study in this because so many of them can spread so rapidly and you sort of see this advance 
of of how their distribution is growing and so you know there's a lot of interest in the biogeography of invasive species because you want to know where are they going to go to next you know is there a limit to where they can occur you know the certain type of plant might not be able to endure harsh winters so it's only going to go up to this latitude or, or something like that um, so the dispersal ability is really important because if they can't disperse far you know if it's like a mouse it's going to take a very long time for them to fill the gaps where they don't occur on the landscape and of course they're going to be filling spaces that are suitable for them you know you know which doesn't mean everywhere yeah and then sort of like you said you know does this if they require of course you know we're talking very broadly here because when you get into each species the details are very important but you know if they're relying on a certain type of vegetation um you know maybe that specific type of vegetation is linked to a certain type of soil and so therefore that species may be linked to a certain type of soil because it's linked to that type of tree or, or something like that or geological geomorphological dynamic that exists in that area you know thus producing that yeah kind of soil. and throughout history yeah how it's changed you know in the united states or in north america rather the glaciers are have played a big role in shaping the biogeography of many species you know glaciers used to come down across where the great great plains are and then they receded and so they left this divide of plains in the middle of the continent and so it caused certain species <clears throat> during that time period yeah. to to split either going to the east or going to the west so you have like black-headed grosbeaks in the west and rose-breasted grosbeaks in the east um closely related but they're sort of divided down the middle where the glacier used to occur so those are obvious reasons but it's not always that obvious you know right perhaps even we could go with last week's news even the cheetah for example you know we were talking about how you know the 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 indian supreme court was considering or has agreed to reintroduce well then you get reintroduce the cheetah however using the namibian uh, you know, examples and that, you know, that would be an African substitution. But anyways, you know, if we take the, the cheetah on a historical level, um, would have, you know, if we look at a historical range map of the cheetah, which I have done several times, um, you will see that it will encompass every single zone in Africa, on the African continent, excluding like what's, you know, the Sahara desert. And even then, you know, there's intrusion in certain points, and then it will include into the Middle East, parts of, you know, you know, all the way into Turkey, into parts of Turkey, um, Azerbaijan, and things like that, and then continuing its way into Central Asia, making its way as far north as Kazakhstan. And of course, we know that, you know, cheetahs are plain species, so we can, you know, there's great plains across Central Asia, great plains across um, the Middle East, all the way into India. So you can kind of understand how it was possible, but each one is a little particular than the other, you know, in the, the, the plains of, you know, Kazakhstan are incredibly cold uh, at some points and they can have severe snow. So how, how did that limit the species in terms of its colonization, colonization period? Um, and then of course you have the differentiation between an African cheetah and an Asiatic cheetah, these kinds of things. So um, when you really 
start sitting down and you're asking yourself these questions, that's when you realize how quickly this can turn into a rabbit hole <laughs> because you're going to, you know, and what sucks up both Jonah and I's time is because once you kind of start, it's like anything, you know, you, you ask this question, then it leads you to the next one. And I think because of how vast, you know, biogeography is that it's just more commonly going to occur. Um, you know, it's interesting, for example, uh, studying, going back to the cheetah, like, you know, I, I, I like to study a lot about the cheetah's occurrence in, you know, the, you know, the former Soviet Union, the former Russian Empire, so places like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Turkmenistan, and, you know, the closest population to that is in Iran now. I think it's only a population of about 60, if I'm not mistaken, since the last report, and even then it's not great, and we just had the, the people that were studying them were in prison there not too long ago in Iran. But anyways, um, it's really difficult to study about them. And then when they were occurring, there was very little. And when they were occurring in those regions, there was very little you know, data that was recorded. I mean, comparatively speaking to what we know now about cheetahs. Of course, there was some you know, behavior that was included. And, you know, I have some books that were written by you know, Russian zoologists about you know, cheetah occurrences in certain places. But it's, it's you know, the type of, like I was you know, talking about, you know, the type of environment that they were in, um, in Kazakhstan, and in particular in the Asturia Plateau, compared to you know um, Zambia, or compared to in Niger, you know we talk about the Saharan uh, cheetah population that was found in southern Algeria. You know, now we're you know in southern Algeria, you're getting away from you know this kind of steppy. It's getting kind of deserty, and before that to happen, you know, you know as we know with population movements, you know forward or you know, that population to succeed, it needs, it needs you know, um, the mixing of genes from other populations. So, you know, <laughs> like it sounds, that kind of sounds like I'm going on a tangent here, but it, it's because how vast, you know, first of all, it's on the scale, it's on the scale of the globe once again. And it's, it's understanding how was this species able to kind of, um, what gave it the capability to, you know, uh, capitalize on all these available, you know, quote unquote available lands to colonize rather than another species. You know, we see the same tendency, very similar in, um, in lions that were, you know, Asiatic lion ranged throughout the Middle East, not as far north as the, the cheetah in Central Asia. So, you know, different behavior, you know, the lion isn't a complete plains species compared to the Chino or so on and so forth. So what, what are your thoughts about that, Jonah? Yeah, and then you, you think about, you know, you, you sort of talked about what it used to be and then what it is now, but then there's this whole period in between right? where you're, you have to ask what happened. And, you know, that's a, that's a huge area for it to shrink down to what it is now. Right. And again, there's multiple factors, but you can't, they're not, you know, you can't treat it them in isolation. So you have, of course, human activities where, whether they're direct killing you know, of cheetahs or yeah, habitat, direct killing habitat degradation, wiping out their prey or something. Um, all of those things. But at the same time, you have environmental variables changing like in North Af the whole of North Africa, the whole continent. Um, it becoming more arid and so potentially in a lot of areas it's less suitable because right. there's not as much prey there's a lower density of prey or the prey just disappeared or the cheetahs couldn't survive in that area which you know may not be the case because obviously they persist in 
Algeria and the Sahara, but you know, it's it's maybe different, you know, as you go to look at more specific areas. Right. But you know, we know that northern Africa used to be a lot more um a lot less arid. There was lots of lakes and stuff. That's right. Um, you could still find, you know, North African elephant species occurring in, you know, Tunisia and Algeria, you know. And we know how much yeah. bio needs they have, If you know, how much they need to consume. So that gives you an indication of how much plant life was available and these kinds of things, you know, moisture that was available. Yeah, giant saddlebill stork fossils have been found. Extensive human um, settlement from yeah. archaeological finds there you know the and they were these giant like giant paleo lakes basically and so it's you know you can sort of imagine what like southern africa was like that's how the sahara what the sahara used to be like exactly or a lot of it at some point and you know desertification has has really shaped and not this is obviously not just applicable to the cheetah it's applicable to all the species that used to occur there. Elephants don't occur there anymore. Saddles don't occur there anymore. Um, it's it's really interesting when you look at a lot of birds, especially water birds, and of course I know the most about storks. When you look at all the African storks, I'm obsessed with stork biogeography. They all s- sort of share a very similar um, like geographic range, you know, if you're looking at their range maps. Of course, well, the saddlebill is the only one that's really been mapped in detail, which I just did recently, But, and I want to do the others now. But, you know, you have to wonder, you know, they all occur in the same area, so there has to be some sort of niche partitioning where, you know, they can exist in the same area but not be competing for the same right. exact resources. So maybe saddlebill, because they're bigger, are eating larger fish than yellow-billed stork or abdom stork or something and so or they have different feeding methods and so they're not like overlapping in their niches or marabou are feeding on carrion or something like that but when you look anyways my whole point of bringing that up is when you look at these species and a lot of other birds and mammals they all the ones that are really widespread that have sort of enjoy like a largely sub-saharan distribution they the sahara the sahel sahara region is the northern limit of their range because they can't exist any farther north yet we know like i said that there's fossils of giant saddlebills and other things from the sahara and so what used to be there and so as desertification has occurred, it's like limited these species distributions southward. So there's now this northern limit that is continuing to move southward in some areas because of poor land use and resulting desertification. Um, And so the Sahel region is really interesting biogeographically because of this historical dynamic, in addition to what's going on and the way people are using the landscape currently and historically. And so in a lot of species, and the saddlebill stork is one of them, you know, this this is probably the region where 
they're going to disappear next because it's sort of like this periphery that's becoming less suitable, potentially more fragmented. And this is um, a trend you often see, but you know, in the literature, it's there's different um, hypotheses about it. So whether species become extirpated on the periphery of their range first or whether it starts inward and goes out there's you know it depends on the species ecology and right. where they occur but the you know it, it could be different for different species but in in africa it's for these species that are largely sub-saharan um it's the peripheries that are the popu peripheral populations are disappearing first and with my you know, ongoing research with saddleable distribution, it's exactly what you see. Like the populations in West Africa are much more fragmented and the core of the range is like from East to Southern Africa and continuing to shrink. I mean, I found that they've pretty much disappeared from Central Africa. There's only like two records in the past 50 years from the Congo when before there was a heck of a lot more. And when you're considering these things and you're doing this kind of research, you have to be careful with these kind of conclusions. So I'm not saying that conclusively because maybe you just don't have sufficient current data. Right. And, and especially in Africa and Central Africa, coverage for getting like presence information can be challenging when there's, you know, war and, and conflict and stuff. So, there's not as much research going on there as say like you know south africa where there's a ton of research going on so there's a lot more data on species in south africa than there are in the democratic republic of congo or something yeah. like that um, or, or south sudan and so, <laughs> yeah exactly which we'll get to there um we're just this is just a, a podcast about african biogeography actually yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um well, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's leave Africa and let's talk about. Um, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the um, biogeographic realms. Mm -hmm. That before we talk about them, um, I just want to say that whenever you're talking about biogeography, you have to mention these. But really, they're just made up um, because things aren't this clear cut right you know what i mean so when we're talking about biogeographic realms we're talking about these ways that um people have divided the earth because like i've said before we're obsessed with putting things into categories right. so looking at the the pat like the very like the broadest scale patterns of ecological distribution how can we divide up the earth but so you you have um, you know people have divided up the earth into these large regions right. that are supposed to like somehow tell you about something, and you know for some groups of organisms these um, divisions like they make sense, but others they just fall apart. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's well let me list them real quick. So you have Palearctic, Nearctic, Neotropic, Indo-Malayan. Australian, Afrotropical, Sub-Saharan, uh, Afro-Tropical, uh, and then uh, Oceanic. So 
Paleoarctic is pretty much that standard uh, across North and Europe and Northern Asia, correct? If I'm not mistaken, Paleoarctic range. It's it's like a circumpolar range in the sense that it's, you know, where nor the top, like the northern portion of the earth, you know, could like uh, mixed-leaf deciduous forests, uh, coniferous forests, um, you know, a, a classic Paleoarctic. And not even that, it can also be, you know, across, across the Mediterranean as well. You know, a, t a typical... Well, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Paleoarctic is just the old world of that. Right. And then Nearctic is the new world of it. That's true. But, like, yeah, I guess because, you know, for example, you you know, you can take the gray wolf and it has a Paleoarctic zone, but it also is occurring in the, the Nearctic. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's why, that's why yeah. I had Which is why, where these fall apart. Exactly. Some species occur in both, and it's like, how do you divide it up? And, that, like, a great example is that, so if we take the, um, the yellow-throated martin, which is a typical Indo-Malayan species, uh, you know, occurring in, like the name, like the name, like Indo-Malayan, so Indian subcontinent, Indo, you know, Indo-Chinese areas, so things like Vietnam and places. But it also occurs all the way into a, you know, Paleoarctic zone, all the way into Far Eastern Russia, which is its northernmost range. And so, you know, we call them Indo-Malayan species, and we, you know. That's why these regions are very interesting, such as uh, the Caucasus Mountains, all these kind of connecting zones like the Sahel is because that's where you have the mixing of these quote-unquote Paleoarctic species and, uh, new, you know, or the other opposite range, you know, or Indo-Malayan or something like that. That's what's very interesting is when they're mixing together. And that, that begs the question, are they, you know, are they legitimately, I mean, we can, yeah, they have higher concentrations in that zone, but... That's where, you know, we were talking about it's that's where it kind of unravels and that's where new questions need to be asked. Yeah. Re I mean, really, the they don't really represent. I mean, in some cases, they represent the organisms found there, but mostly they're just sort of defined by like the biomes, like the right. different eco regions, like based on the large vegetation types, you know, so like whatever temperate forest and tropical forest and um whatever and yeah so there's they're not really used that much anymore yeah it's definitely more 20th century so yeah they're they're just they're like you said it's mostly a 21st or a 20th century thing but they're still they're helpful for understanding the history of biogeography and sort of like thinking about biomes but they're not really useful for anything beyond that, like in a meaningful way. Right. With sustenance. Um, right? Yeah. So, man, there's, there's just so much to consider in this. Let's talk about like how speciation might occur. Sure. So I think going, let's go back to the cheetah example yeah. because that's, that's a good one. Um, well, first, we should say that when we're talking about biogeography, the not just in biogeography, but the way we define a species is problematic, like across the board. Oh, of course. And then we we say subspecies, and you know, and we just sort of set these lines, like oh, whether they have this percent similarity in genetics, should they be different species or whatever. Um, you know, they used to consider species that, you know, if they looked different, they were completely different species. Um, but now we know that they're not that genetically different, so they're just subspecies now or, or whatever. 
So when we're talking about biogeography and how speciation occurs, these like historic patterns are really important because just like you were saying with the cheetah, they occurred across this huge area, but at some point, you know, the range started to contract and it became disjunct. Right. And so maybe the cheetah isn't a great example because, yeah, there's like what we consider these cheetah subspecies, but if you... If there were, depending on the pressures that these fragmented populations experienced, you know, the ones in the north, eventually, who knows how long it would take. It doesn't have to take a long time, like people think. You know, we we watch, like, new species arise. Right. Genetically, frequently, from isolation like that, you know, genetic isolation, because then certain character traits become more prominent in the population and you know so up there in the north maybe the cheetahs have a longer coat or something um maybe they're relying more on like stalking than you know running down like on the plains of uh you know east africa or something and so you know eventually these species these cheetah populations could become genetically distinct enough to be considered different species depending on how we arbitrarily determine different species you know what i mean yeah that makes sense. and which is exactly how we get the subspecies and the leopards are also another good example because they're also so widespread and also so fragmented even more so than the all the way over in russia exactly you have the amur leopard that is lives in super cold russian climate in forests and then you also have leopards in rainforests in southeast right. asia and africa and or everywhere in between or in deserts. gray wolves on the tundra and then in the desert in saudi arabia yeah yeah, exactly. yeah. so these these wide-ranging species are really interesting um from a speciation perspective because there's more opportunity for speciation right and canines are interesting because so many so many of them can um, what we call hybridize or like you know well yeah I'll just say hybridize you know a jackal hybridizing with a a gray wolf or a coyote hybridizing with a gray wolf and then or with the issue in the United States the red wolf hybridizing with coyotes was there even ever a red wolf or things like things like this because there's so much um interchange of genetics that could muddy the genetic pool or potentially you know lead to a new species to form it's also a perception too because if you think about we haven't been studying it to this degree since you know 200 years you know what i mean so it, well, and genetics, genetics, like 50 years, maybe at, at most for a lot of these questions. Yeah. So, you know, we want to pretend we understand what's going on here, but we haven't a clue. Exactly. Like if we take, you were talking about the red wolf, like it could have changed from another species. Like, you know, we wouldn't even know. <laughs> it's been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some other. And there's, I mean, there's so much debate with the, with the wolf, even just the regular gray wolf in North America, like the timber wolf right. versus the 
gray wolf whatever but the i think the reason i want i was bringing up canines is because because there's so much hybridizing like even between well anyways like you know a wolf and a jackal um like it, the golden jackal are you familiar with the golden jackal yeah. isn't that an it's was it's like a newly um considered species that they didn't really until they started doing genetics they couldn't really they didn't really know well yeah what it was well there's well the golden yeah so they're no, he's that yeah because you have this idea of north african wolf species you know what i mean and they've been calling it a jackal forever but they're not exactly sure and it kind of acts like a wolf but it looks a lot like a jackal you know what i mean so and it's very loose yeah. and their range you know because sometimes you see ranges like from senegal to north africa so yeah it, it's a very it's like where do you pick and choose kind of thing you know what i mean you almost have to ha- you have to almost be um subjective you're almost being subjective at some point you know you can't you know yeah because it's your it's your it's your almost you're gonna go against your understanding of what that is you know what we're calling that species yeah and and genetics genetics has only just served to like make it more confusing because <laughs> you're like oh wait that isn't a jackal that's not the regular african jackal it's exactly it's a completely different wolf species or whatever um so yeah the in you know what could have led to that genetic isolation um from habitat changes or, or whatever Adaptation or it could just be whatever, random yeah. chance from the way that the genetic drift occurred or hybridization i mean these are Anyways, we're just, like, rambling on with these questions that we'll never be able to answer, really. Um, but, anyway, so this speciation can occur in a variety of ways, and it can lead to the patterns that we currently observe. And so, I'm going to go back to Saddleable Storks, because it's what I'm working on. I am really interested in all stork biogeography, um but especially the relationship between the saddlebill stork and the blackneck stork, which are in the same genus. And the saddlebill stork is found in Africa. The blackneck stork is found in Asia and Australia. And, you know, they're, they're, as the stork flies, relatively, they're not that far apart. And they really aren't that different from each other. Yeah. If you look at them, they coloration. look very similar, yeah. In terms of morphology. Yeah, and... And the saddlebill has a saddle and the blackneck doesn't. But, you know, the saddlebills used to occur in Egypt. They're in, um, they're depicted in Egypt because they were actually represented as a god in Egypt. And so we know that they used to occur there. And then we know, maybe I've talked about this before with Mariana, I don't remember. But based on the way that the depictions in the hieroglyphs change, we can you can tell when species went extinct from ancient Egypt because they weren't actually looking at them anymore, so they became less accurate looking. So we know that they went extinct at the beginning of the Old Kingdom or were extirpated at the beginning of the Old Kingdom. But my point is that they all used to go all the way up there. And so my question is, well, is there evidence like that or maybe fossil evidence that they used to occur in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia 
and then that's really just a hop, skip, and a jump from where they occur as far um, west as India now. And when you consider just the wetlands that are available throughout there, especially historically before it came as arid as it is now, it's so just in my mind, like I'm, I'm sort of thinking about how it could, ha- how we could get to where they are now. And it just makes sense how the speciation would have occurred because that area in between, they became isolated because it became arid and then they just became separated. And so the genetic isolation, you know, in India, for whatever reason, the genetic traits went in this direction. And in Africa, they went in this direction. And that's how we got to where they are now. Um, and then you have the Jabiru in South America and Central America that is closely related to them, but not in the same genus. And that's a whole other story. But um, so that's just another example of you know, how these factors can, can lead to speciation and, and why we see what we do today. It's like tapers, you know? It's like you have three different species of tapers in, in Central and South America, then all of a sudden you have one in, in, in Southeast Asia. You know, and it's like, what? What happened here? Yeah, yeah. Or we could list examples all day, like even more peculiar, peculiar cases like... Um, paddlefish oh yeah no well we talked about recently the chinese paddlefish went extinct but that used to be found in southern asia southeast asia and then we also have the american paddlefish in north america and so or related alligator uh north american alligator and chinese alligator that too yeah and you know these are uh, these are not questions that are easy to answer by any means but they really take, and they're not questions that are often addressed, to be frank. You know, it takes someone who's obsessed like me to, like, have the passion. Think about this. Yeah, exactly. To dream about this yeah. every night. You know, to look at these very specific questions. And it's, you know, and, some, and a lot of times it has conservation significance when we're talking about speciation, isolated populations, and stuff like that. You know, my particular case, I'm just interested in it and curious. Right. Um, That's enough to fuel you, yeah, and, just like me. And and also, I don't want to discount, you know, understanding certain processes like that will help you understand with what could potentially happen to a species currently, you know, with, with climate change. Um, and then you have, okay, so we're, we're talking about like these how speciation occurred like with disjunct ranges but then you have cases like with islands and island biogeography is probably the most heavily studied part of biogeography because it's some of the weirdest and the most interesting um the scales vary too you have what's that in the scale you know it's a different scale yeah different yeah because you can have And again, it all depends on the history of whatever islands we're talking about. You know, how long ago were they connected to the mainland or were they created from a underwater volcano? And so they just were completely reliant on colonization from the nearest continent, what have you. And you get, there's so many different factors that influence, you know, what occurs on islands now. But 
certain patterns you observe now are like a lot of islands especially small ones don't have amphibians so why is that well because their eggs can't survive in salt water or amphibians can't survive in salt water because their skin is permeable and they they can't handle that compared to like you know birds that are highly mobile right it's easy to understand how they could get to islands then you have things like island dwarfism which is sometimes happens but more commonly it's island gigantism like the tortoises yeah like the tortoises the galapagos tortoises or komodo dragons why did why did a lizard a monitor lizard grow to be 10 feet long on this one island or these few islands right yeah Um, i mean i get sometimes you know it's like if you take the example of the um the leopard on in, in sri lanka a lot of times we denote it to the fact that there was no other top predator more powerful than it than it just you know nothing competed with it so it was able to grow so some you know this you know, there was no tigers in Sri Lanka or that we know of, and so that's why they got so big because there was nothing competing with them. You know, there's that's one example, but that's not the example for everything. So, yeah, why and why would a Komodo dragon? You know, why would a, a monitor lizard get to ten feet long? Is there because there's nothing else that could pick on it? Who knows? You know. Or I think in a lot of cases, like especially New Zealand, you know, animals used to be a lot bigger than they are now. Yes. If if people aren't aware of that. Um, just because climate changes have led species to be smaller and then just genetic... uh, And human involvement to, you know, like hunting the bigger ones and therefore their genes not transmitting, you know. Yeah, especially in recent times. Like, look at the elephant bird, you know, that existed not too long ago. Yeah, but, like, going back to the Komodo dragon, I just want to finish there um, with that. You know lizards used to be a lot bigger and stuff and so these ones that got isolated on these islands because like you said there were no predator other predators they just stayed the size that they used to be so it's all about perspective too right. you know we're because most monitor lizards are small now we're like well the komodo dragons got big yeah but also Where? maybe everything else got small yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah it's just, all about perspective yeah we think because we're looking at it now that's the end all say all whereas we weren't there before so we don't know you know we're only able to observe from what we have now yeah exactly another like (laughs) new zealand is crazy when we're talking about island gigantism because you used to have uh, a handful of species of moa yeah which were a giant flightless species only found on new zealand Think ostrich, but bigger. Think three and a half meters or 12 feet tall. Oh, my gosh. And 230 kilos or five over 500 pounds. Um, and, you know, relatively, they were not... They were there not that long ago. They were estimated to go extinct, like, between 1300 and 1400 A.D. Which is not that long. Yeah, that's... Um, and so, you know, before Polynesians colonized New Zealand, these birds, there were no, there's no large mammals down there. Um, so these moas sort of filled the ecological niche being grazers and, and being the large herbivores on the islands. And then at the same time, you have giant predators that would feed on the moas like Hosts' eagle. Yeah. 
um, which was massive and let's it was like like 30 pounds or 20 to 30 pounds 10 to 15 kilos um males were a little smaller uh they're they were huge like 10 feet long huge wingspans and so they could hunt these 12 foot tall birds these moas and so these are like extreme cases of island gigantism that persisted till pretty recently. And of course, yeah, Madagascar is a really good example as well. Giant Lemurian species, uh, giant hawk yeah. eagle species to hunt them. Same situation with the elephant bird, very similar in size and in um, morphology to the moa. So yeah, it's like a trend, you know, it's like it has to be a large enough island to be able to supply it with its necessary food. You know, you can't just do this on like, I don't know, like. Mallorca or something, but at the same time, you know, it just goes to show, given the proper context, yeah, life will, life will find a way and keep on going. Oh gosh, <laughs> no. But it, when you think, it, when you consider these examples, we're talking a lot about examples because it's just this is just such a vast field. Like it's, it's difficult to 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 summarize it and to talk about all of it, which is something that's challenging about making this into a podcast episode, but maybe it'll pique people's interest. But when you think about these examples, and you have these examples where we understand these patterns, you know, why we understand, in some cases, you know, the pattern of island gigantism. We understand how species in Africa, their ranges have receded from North Africa, things like that. You know, these these case studies, they give you, like I keep saying, they give you insight to how certain populations may respond in certain conditions. Um, and with climate change, with the compounded threats of climate change and, um, you know, habitat fragmentation and stuff, biogeography, I don't, I think has never been understanding biogeography has never been so important in order to help us, you know, um, project how species are going to respond basically. So, you know, I, I sort of take back what I was saying, how it's, you know, it might not have conservation implication. It's just because I'm interested in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm interested in it, but you know, it, it does have relevance whether it's in the immediate or in the long run, because the more you know, the more you know, you know? <laughs> That's true. It can lead you to become a madman, but it's worth it. Yeah. My my greed for knowledge. Exactly. If Yeah, if I had a, a monetary value for all of my questions, I would be there. Yeah, I'd be pretty rich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, who can... That should be like a game show. Who can come up with the most questions? Exactly. It would just be like scientists winning every time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gosh, trying to think of maybe some things we didn't... We didn't cover. I feel like I was just rambling. We were. a lot of specific examples. Well, let's talk about South Sudan it's not unique in you know the 
what we're going to talk about, but sort of how sometimes it's just, oh, I, <laughs> I'm hesitant to say this, but sometimes it's just coincidence. Yeah, which we were talking about isn't the truth. It's not, it, we just don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. So like, okay, so let's talk about South Sudan as an example. I think, I think providing case examples is helpful for understanding yeah. like biogeography in some cases. So we're talking about South Sudan. You know, before we started recording, Camden and I were talking about how interesting South Sudan is because it is at sort of this transition zone, um, like ecologically, climactically, culturally, culturally, yeah, geographically. And so there's just this huge, of course, we're also talking about like some made up political borders. Right. but it's so such a biodiverse country because because it's this transition zone. You know, you have in the south and the southwest, you have jungle where there's like bongos and chimpanzees and these like tropical forest species. And then as you go towards the south or towards the north, I mean, it's increasingly arid. But then also right in the middle, you have the sud wetland which i think we talked about a little bit before and then to the east you have where it's also arid where it meets um ethiopia and kenya and so it's this transition zone it's just extremely biodiverse because it has this variety of environments that you know seem happenstance just because of our political borders which is what's interesting when people like i've i may have mentioned this with mariana before but like people in texas are like so proud because texas as a state is so biodiverse and all this stuff it's like (laughs) you're so large and it's just a coincidence of where you geographically fall it's not not it's not anything you've done like it's not like you've made it this way so it's something you have to be proud about um and so when i just always find it interesting when countries you know give all these statistics about their biodiversity and stuff as if it's something that they've done to accomplish that (laughs) besides choosing the place to be (laughs) yeah but um anyways do you have anything to add about south sudan well yeah we were talking about those you know it's on some major axes you know, it's like the system, you know, so a horizontal axis of the Sahel region. It's also on, you know, um, a vertical axis, you know, the axis from very similar to where the Rift Valley runs its course. You know, obviously it's not the Rift Valley, but, you know, west of it. But um, and then you have that major axis of the Nile itself, you know, kind of being a major axis. And so, um you know, we were talking, it almost like you could kind of draw two lines and kind of pinpoint it almost, you know, that's, it's, that's, it's so cool about yeah. it. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but in the Sud and around the Sud is the second largest migration in Africa, but no one ever cares or talks about it. And it's major under risk because of, you know, political and turmoil and conflict in the area. But, you know, you know, this isn't just some minute with some interesting, you know, biodiversity. This is numbers of biodiversity. You know what I mean? It's not just a wide variety of things. It's a huge quantity of things as well, you know, um, 
that you can find of different species that makes it very unique. And then, you know, the soot itself, you know, with the papyrus swamps and, you know, um, just how difficult the navigation through the area, thus kind of making it why it is the way it is and the conflict around the area, why it hasn't been as, you know, quote unquote untouched or less touched compared to, you know, neighboring regions is, you know, um, an interesting circus to study. Um, yeah, South Sudan is a whole, yeah, you know, granted it's a large, it's a large area, but it's the, the proximity of like we were talking about those different zones that, you know, are touching and mixing together that, which is very interesting. It's those transition zones. Uh, another interesting zone, um, in the neighboring country of the Central African Republic. Um, there's a, one of African parks, uh, the Chinko Reserve, Chinko Project Reserve, uh, is a very interesting place because once again, it's, you know, um, if you were to draw a line, you know, you would head west from South Sudan, kind of northwest a little bit direction. But anyways, um, you know, in the Chinko Reserve, you have the typical Sudano-Savannah region mixing with the Guinean and Equatorial African um, rainforest right on top of each other. And so you have the interaction between those species, which is also very interesting to me. Uh, and that's when you discover, you know, when you're... Not only when you're studying biogeography are you studying, you know, the biogeography of a species, but a lot of times it's the connections and the mixing of those two species that's very interesting. Um, you know, I, I remember you know, when I was a little bit younger, uh, not necessarily younger, but I was watching I remember the documentary Wild Arabia. Um, they said, you know, here we have, they were, they were there was some footage, some, um, uh, what do you call that, uh, heat... Uh, Oh gosh, sounding real intelligent here. But what is it when you film with the heat, so you can see the body heat of an uh, of something um, thermal? Oh yeah, like the, the thermal. Imagery. Yeah, thermal footage. So they had some thermal imagery of um, some Arabian wolves. Then all of a sudden, a striped hyena show up, and they were like, "This is one of the few places you can actually see." leopards and wolves together and at third i was like yeah that's kind of true then i realized no that's not true because throughout the entire middle east all the way until the indian subcontinent more or less the two species kind of mix not necessarily all the time but it's that combination of you know factor you know environmental factors that allows that species to be here and the other one to be here and then they're mixing whereas we kind of in our head maybe it's you know it's a, it's a question of our own conception but the idea that uh you know some you know we think of striped hyena so we're thinking you know african species um, therefore, you know, it's, it's a surprising that it exists in the Middle East. And then we're thinking wolf in our head. We're thinking, okay, then it's a Northern species. And so it just happens to be, uh, you know, in the South. So we're on the contrary. No, it's not that, you know, they've been there for a long, long time. And so that's, what's also interesting to me. And I know we, I diverted greatly from the soot, but, um, <laughs> that's, let's just that... continue around the globe. Where <laughs> exactly. Going next? Yeah. The soot, that's, it's a perfect example. So you have a lot of those mixing of species in the area too, which is, uh, you know, unique, I guess you could say. And it's unique now, um, probably, you know, more so unique now because of habitat degradation, you know, intervention of mankind. Who knows what kind of, at what frequency these kinds of zones occurred or were as productive, whereas they're not now so much anymore. You know what I mean? Or you don't consider them as have being, you know, very interesting. You know, for example, Mauritania, we don't talk a lot about things happening in Mauritania, but there's plenty of, you know, mixing of species going on there or, you know, uh, incredible biodiversity in certain places where it used to occur, but we, you know, we, we don't even talk about it. Yeah. And I sort of what you, you said about South Sudan 
it, how it's um what am i trying to say like how it hasn't been how the biodiversity has been preserved sort of mm. because of um accessibility it's really interesting how and i would be interested in looking at this at a larger scale around the world how has the biogeography of a region meaning the climate the geography the vegetation all, all these kind of things how has that influenced um like the penetration of development right. basically because because in south sudan you have the sud this giant massive wetland which sud is derived from an arabic word meaning barrier where you know it was so difficult to cross so you have on that southwest or southeastern side of it hasn't been that well accessed by you know like empires that it hasn't been as, as it hasn't been as developed throughout history because people haven't been able to reach it and honestly like i feel like that's one of the sole reasons that the the her large herbivore migrations there still persist even despite all of the conflict civil conflict in the past 60 70 years because it just hasn't been accessible and so i'd be interested to consider that kind of situation in other parts of the world obviously every part of the world is unique and so you know the combination of these different dimensions you know climate vegetation whatever is going to be different but how has accessibility influenced the persistence of human accessibility influenced the persistence of um, biodiversity and of course you think about the amazon and the congo you know those are probably like the least the last least explored places or whatever um but you know it's only been recently with the advance of technology that we've been able to penetrate them especially the amazon to exploit it whereas before it was just sort of like this mystery zone because (laughs) people couldn't get there and so we had no clue what was going on there i mean we still don't but because now we can go in with giant machinery it's it's a different story and i think yeah so anyways it's just it's interesting to ponder that and something that we have i was reflecting as you were saying that you know we were talking about a lot of climatic and geo you know geology has a huge impact um one place like one kind of zone that definitely you know is very interesting to study biogeographically is uh, like mountain ranges and significant mountain ranges like the himalayas um you know if you take the country and once again you know we're talking about political made up borders but if you take for example the country of bhutan um you have a wide variety of species in a small area um and often coming into contact for example um you know they've clocked uh you know bengal tigers up at I'm not mistaken, 3,000 meters and not 3,000 feet, uh, which is incredibly high for, um, and I could be wrong, it could be 3,000 feet, but even nonetheless, that's very high for what we we don't consider, you know, uh, tigers, mountain-ranging species, so why is it that they're occurring there in such, you know, conditions, and maybe that was the case in other places, but we didn't think about it before. Uh, there's a great uh, documentary about that where they're trying to look for evidence of uh, tigers in Bhutan. I can't remember 
what the name of it was, but that's, you know, it's interesting. Um, and then, you know, not only do you have, you know, tigers in the air, you have snow leopards in the same area because, you know, you know, we all, a lot of times we think of things like horizontally, but also, you know, biodiversity can happen vertically because you have, because of the change in altitude and whatnot, you have a variety and um, diversity of climate, um, ecosystems, you know, it's like sky islands in that sense, you know, you have a lot going on in a small zone, um, and it's interesting because a lot of it has to do with the geological factors in that area, that get in the in the climate and so on and so forth. So um, I just kind of wanted that, and I didn't really have anything crazy to say about it, but I just wanted to add it. Yeah, yeah, we didn't we didn't really actually address that, and that's a really important part of biogeography that we won't get too into at this point. But um, is mountains because you see similar trends, you know, when you're going in lat up in latitude towards the poles towards either pole you know it gets colder and you see certain patterns and you see the same thing in mountains as you go up in elevation right. um with climate and and vegetation types a lot of times too and there's so many factors that contribute to that you know wind patterns and and rainfall and stuff and so that this all you know, getting into the very nitty gritty, when we're talking about climate, you know, you have the tilt of the earth and the way that the sun hits yeah, the right. earth. And so the amount of energy and then, you know, how much is being irradiated back up and things like that. And you have the same thing going on at, um, you know, when you're going up in altitude, it's cooler there because, um, just the way the, the atmosphere is different. And so it's, it's different processes that are causing those similar patterns between going up in altitude and going up in latitude. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a whole, and we're not even talking about aquatic ecosystems like the ocean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably even less understood than anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's for like sure. you're adding in, how much pressure can you tolerate as you descend to thousands of feet? Right, yeah. <laughs> How come humans haven't um, colonized underwater like the Gungans in Star <laughs> <Yeah>. Wars? <laughs> oh, man, I would love me some cod and some fambas. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that's like our super crash course in biogeography, which hopefully sparked some interest in certain things. And I... You know, something we didn't really say at the beginning is that these kind of questions, I mean, we're asking very specific questions, but some of these questions are things that you might be asking every day, like, well, not you, but, well, maybe some people that are interested in ecology and stuff, like, why am I observing this? Like, why does this pattern occur? So these are very relevant. These are very fundamental questions that can really grow into very specific things and so you know you don't have to be interested in the very specific details of what led whatever this turtle to these turtles to become different species but just realize that the the fundamental questions of biogeography are things that we commonly ask anyways in other other fields especially in ecology okay well um Biogeography down, second to last episode. 
Um, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. We'll still have that going for a little while after the the podcast ends, just so people are still listening. And of course, after we finish, the episodes will still be available on whatever podcast platform you get you you use. And then also on our website, conservationchronicles.podbean.com. We'll still have our email in case you're listening to this in the very distant future. Um, conservationchronicles at gmail.com. You can email us about anything. And that is that. Do you have anything to add, Camden? No, I'm just happy to be here. Uh, hopefully they can make sense of some of my ramblings. And <laughs> If you have any questions or want to... <laughs> Correct Both or of our rambling. Yeah, exactly. Please feel free. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, thanks for uh, helping me to continue wrapping yeah, up. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. I'm j- Every time we do these episodes, I'm like, why am I not doing this full time? <laughs> That's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> it, uh, you know, honestly, for listeners out there, you know, we kind of pull this together. This is sort of a homegrown thing, but it is like a second job, like putting together. I mean, this outline, we kind of winged it, if you didn't notice, but... You know, normally we we spend a lot of time putting these together, and um, it's a lot of work. So I understand how some people have podcasts as a full time. Yeah, it should be cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if only. Is there any uh, funders out there that want yeah, some funders? Patreon supporters? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't even do that like other podcasts. Yeah, exactly. You're getting this for free. Yeah. This is a public service. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for listening, and stay tuned for our last episode next time.